My name is Jamie Keach, and you're listening to the Resource Insider Podcast, where we talk to CEOs, thought leaders, and entrepreneurs in the mining and metals industry. Welcome to another episode of the Resource Insider Podcast. Today, I'm happy to announce we have a sponsor, which is McMillan LLP, a Canadian leading business law firm with an international presence and client base. The firm has offices in Toronto, Vancouver, Calgary, Ottawa, Montreal, and Hong Kong, and specializes in business law, capital markets and securities regulation, mergers and acquisitions, natural resource law, and many other things. I would like in particular to thank our legal counsel, Roland Hurst, who is a leading capital markets, M&A, and mining lawyer at the law firm of Macmillan based here in Vancouver. Roland acts as a trusted advisor to mining companies, entrepreneurs, and financiers, assisting them with their domestic and international mining projects. Roland's done a lot of work for Resource Insider. We've been very happy with the things that he's done and Macmillan in general. So we're very proud to have them as a sponsor here at Resource Insider today. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of the Resource Insider podcast. You're going to have to bear with me today. I am as sick as a dog, which you can probably hear already. I've been flying around Brazil the last week looking at projects for our Resource Insider subscription service. Uh, As a result, I think I was on something like seven flights in six days And because of that, I have a massive cold, as I always do when I fly this much. But regardless of that, I'm excited about our podcast today because I got to sit down with a very old friend of mine named Tom Mills. Now, Tom is what you would call a above-ground risk expert in the mining and energies industries. And what that means is he looks at all the challenges mining companies, investors, um, entrepreneurs, and governments face in this sector that are you know not directly related, related to the technical work. So this isn't challenges with the geology or the mining or the environmental issues. This is how uh, people are affected by political, um, economic, and social risks. And Tom comes from a really interesting background in that unlike most of the people we talk to uh, on this podcast, he has spent a lot of his time working not with companies, but rather with governments. So when a government in typically a emerging market uh, in a developing country wants to build out their ministry of mines and energy, they talk to people like Tom. And what he does is he comes in and he helps them develop the regulatory capacity, the legislation, uh, the administrative abilities, the technical abilities, and really the ability to maximize the value a company, a country rather, can receive out of their uh, natural resource endowments. And he did that for a long time with a company called Adam Smith International, which is actually where I met Tom five years ago when I interviewed for a job there. He was the guy that interviewed me, and we've been friends ever since that time. Tom has worked in some of the craziest, most remote countries on earth, uh, particularly in conflict zones. He's worked in Afghanistan. He's worked in Burma. He's worked in Kurdistan. He's worked in Zimbabwe. 
He's worked in probably a lot of other places that I'm forgetting to mention right now. He has been nearly everywhere, uh, and he has worked on some incredibly challenging projects with some incredibly interesting people. Tom is probably the person that I call the most when I have a question about a country that I'm looking at projects in. If I'm looking at an investment in a challenging jurisdiction, Tom is the person I talk to to really try to wrap my head around the challenges that I expect a company that will have to face in that sort of environment. And that's the main reason that I wanted him on the podcast today. I wanted our listeners to hear the kind of people that I get to talk to on a regular basis and that help me make good investment decisions. And there's few people more important than that than Tom and people like him because these are the challenges that so often get overlooked yet typically have the largest impact on a project's success. Today, Tom works with a company called Two Oceans Strategies, where he works with governments, with the private sector, really managing these type of risks, and he's focused on India right now. So without further ado, let me please introduce Tom Mills from Two Oceans Strategy for an incredibly interesting and what I believe people will find a very, very valuable conversation. Tom, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Jamie. Great to be here. Great to speak to you. So this is our, our second attempt at a podcast. We had a disastrous internet uh, connection earlier this week, but I think today we're going to have more success. Um, so, Tom Mills, let's start by you giving the 30,000-foot introduction about who you are, uh, what you do, and what your career has been focused on. Yeah, sure. So... I've spent the last decade working in the natural resources sector. So that's mining, oil and gas, renewable energy. I've really spent this time trying to understand the intersection between politics, society and economics. And mainly where that plays out most intensely, and that's been an emerging and frontier market. Um, and currently I'm the research director at Two Ocean Strategy, which is a risk and research consultancy focused on supporting investors to responsibly and sustainably grab the opportunity presented by natural resource investment in high growth markets in Asia. And that's principally through an assessment and a management of above ground risk in those marketplaces. So uh, right now I'm sitting at home in Vancouver and it's 9am on a Friday morning. And where are you right now? So our listeners can, can place you. So I am at the, uh, at the sort of howling a gale London of, the fe of February where it's just constant drizzle. It's unbelievably gray. Um, it feels like there's a perma dampness around. Um, but I'm, in, I'm in my office in, in London and it's, uh, it's Friday night and it's about quarter past five and um, I've got a beer on the go. Yeah, I've, I've never met a, a Brit that isn't drinking a little bit on a Friday night after work. <laughs> So I think, you know, I want to start by uh, telling how, talking about how we actually met. Um, so we met, and I've been trying to place this, I think it was 2013, about five years ago, uh, when I came in to interview for a job at a company called Adam Smith International, based in London. Uh, we're going to talk more about that in a bit. But you were actually the guy that interviewed me. Uh, 
And you guys literally sat me down there, I think for three hours. And I talked to about five different people and it was the most grueling fucking interview I've ever had, um, in my life. Uh, and it was made worse because I actually had another interview that afternoon with another company. So it was, it was like an eight hour day of interviews. And well, well that was a, an interesting experience. And I really want to talk about Adam Smith International. But I'm excited to have you on the podcast because now I get to interview you and, and put you through some of the same, the same suffering that you were able to I, I, enact I on me. Revenge, Jamie. I think I fear <laughs> it may be. <laughs> um, but what's interesting about that is we kept in touch over the last five years. And given what you do, you know, I immediately marked, uh, you know, what Adam Smith International does and what you've done in particular as, you know, an extremely interesting skill set and the ability to go into these countries, uh, help quantify the risks that are being faced by extractive companies, as well as, you know, working with very high levels of government on, on how to address problems in the extractive industry. And I think I reached out to you again in a couple of years ago, 2015 maybe, uh, when I was going to Myanmar to look at various yeah. projects. Uh, you know, I was going there as an aside to go look at Ruby and Gem projects that I, I still think have a lot of potential, and, and that's a whole other a whole other conversation. But you gave me a very good rundown on sort of the social environment, the political structure, what I could expect there. And, and I know you had spent quite a bit of time there. And I was really impressed by both the, the breadth and the depth of the information that you were able to, to give us. So I think for uh, our listeners to really you know, get the most out of this conversation, we should first talk, or rather you should first talk a little bit about you know, what does it mean to look at above ground risk uh, in the mining and extractives industry? Yeah, so, um, well, I think this is such a fascinating area and I think this is so crucial for all of these industries. So in terms of what it is, uh, above ground risk relates to really the likelihood and impact of an event happening which could uh, uh, influence project costs. And that's as it relates to, uh, that's being caused by social and political factors. So, for example, that could be changes to foreign ownership, which I've seen um, around the world when I was working in Zimbabwe, South Africa, we experienced that. It could be uh, risk around contract compliance. So a country may have um, national legislation that says a certain amount of its staff must be local staff. And it may be sometimes quite difficult to do that due to the very technical jobs that are required very early on in projects. It could be reputational risk. So unwittingly, you may be working with a partner with, that could be illegal. You may, the bene, ultimate beneficiary of the project could be connected to a government in that country. It could get connected to a sanctioned individual and that could have substantial reputational re uh, repercussions. It could also be socioeconomic risk. There could be a risk that the project in totality could result in there being a negative, not a positive impact for the current and future citizens of that country who are the ultimate owners of that asset. And lastly, it could be geopolitical risk. And this is one I find really interesting. So the, the capex requirement of a lot of these projects in emerging markets is so high that actually they play out at a state level and not just at a private sector level. And a good example today would be um, a recent MOU between uh, 
the Russian Geological Society and uh, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, uh, is, is, um, which would benefit Russian mining companies over, potentially over others. So there's some really interesting risks there. And this is an area that's typically most often seen in terms of the expropriation of assets, which is around the ceasing of operations uh, due to the nationalization of natural resources. Um, or the inconvertibility of expiration licenses into production licenses. And I think Reykjavik, um, which is the Barak Antofagasta joint venture in Baluchistan and Pakistan is a good example of a time when an asset has been, uh, production has, that has been really. A bit down from that, you could have the unexpected raising of contract costs by the government. And I think Acacia Mining in Tanzania is a really good example of this where they've got around $190 million requirement in back taxes. But most often, and this is quite often overlooked, these risks play out in terms of frustrating the contract or in interrupting the production or supply of mine sites, which involves so much uh, senior leadership time that could be spent on other things. And that's, that has a really large opportunity cost. So, yeah. yeah so... I think to, to put that into perspective uh, of our listen, for our listeners, I think there's a really good example to be made is that you're really looking at things from the top down. So this is the, the impacts of government and senior government officials can have on, on these assets uh, and these projects and the companies operating in these countries. And I think it's really good to put that into comparison uh, with someone else we've had on the podcast, a gentleman named uh, Donald Bray, who I recently found out was from the same small boarding school as you in England. So apparently there's a boarding school in, in the UK generating uh, social risk experts in, uh, in mining. But So Donald, who uh, everyone should listen to him, he's an anthropologist. We talked a lot about working with communities on the ground, and he has this bottom-up approach of you know building consensus and building relationships and mapping relationships on the ground. So Tom, you're kind of you're kind of coming at that from almost the ex exact opposite yeah. angle. Yeah, you're exactly right. And strangely, Donald and I have worked together where he's taken a bottom-up approach and I've taken a top-down approach. And it's worked incredibly well. But I, I wouldn't mind just talking about, very briefly, about why I think this is really, really important. Mm -hmm. um, at, at a strategic level for a mining company. So we know that mining company your competitive advantage is around your cost, how much you can squeeze your cost. It's not like in uh, consumer electronic goods where you can produce a better product and charge more value for it. Um, uh, 24 karat gold is gonna be the same wherever you produce it and the same for 62 iron or whatever it may be. So you compete on costs, where you are on the cost curve. And in the fast, past few decades, we've seen this real strategic convergence around decreasing this cost through asset sweating, so operational efficiency, and through creating um, economies of scale through M&A activity. Mm -hmm. And you could argue that that's, some have argued that that's just pushing down the price, because that can be replicated quite often throughout a large part of the industry. Mm -hmm. The only real way uh, to produce sustainable competitive advantages are through differentiation. And that is through the uh, access to high grade unique deposits. And the majority of those deposits 
are in emerging and uh, developing countries. And that's what, you know, over 75% of mineral wealth is contained within these, uh, these marketplaces. And there's a far larger um, above ground risk within those places as well. Yeah, you know, you make an interesting point because, you know, traditionally the big major mining companies, be they the Barracks or the Newmonts or Gold Corps or, or any of the diversified majors, most of them have started out of one really fucking awesome asset that just churned out money and it was yeah. almost like the company could do no wrong. You know, they just turned it on and it really... And it really made it made the bedrock of that company, and it lowered their cost of capital because they were just producing cash. They were less reliant on debt. They were less reliant on equity financings. So they were able to build these big companies around these core, maybe one or two assets if they're lucky. Um, and as time has gone on, you know, these assets are obviously harder and harder to come by. You know, yeah. technology has increased. Uh, exploration has become more. Um, competitive and these things are harder to find and you know there's two ways to go about this uh you know you're increasing uh i guess geological competence and the ability to interpret data and find sort of find these assets amongst the ground look that you've been looking at previously by viewing it in a different way the other way is by going places where no one has gone before and typically, the only reason no one has gone there has been because of social unrest or conflict or problems accessing this this geographical part of the world. And, yeah. you know, you and I have talked a lot about this in the past. I think a lot of companies and even a lot of investors have a huge appetite for geological risk. And in my view, sometimes a disproportionately high appetite for geological risk. Uh, and very often a limited uh, appetite for taking on social risk, political risk, these sort of softer above ground risks that we're talking about. And my opinion on this is because those things are typically very, very hard to quantify uh, in numbers. Uh, and most mining companies are run by engineers or accountants yeah. or, or people yeah. who are used to dealing with hard numbers and, you know, statistics. So, that's where you guys come in. Yeah, and I, I, Jamie, I think you are completely right. And I think there have been some really interesting studies recently. You know, there was an article that came out in the Strategic Management Journal recently that said that in the junior mining sector, 66% of the market cap, two thirds of the market cap was due to uh, above ground practices. And only a third is due to the geology. Um, and, and that's, uh, that's nuts when you look at the contribution of the senior leadership within these countries um, that are related to uh, engineers, geologists, lawyers, financiers, but with, who may not have um, that experience around these managing or assessing these above ground risks. So I want to get into all this in more detail. Uh, I want to talk a lot about what companies, what you've seen successful companies do uh, to, to properly address these things and where you've seen, you know, failures occur. But I think it's best that we sort of take a step back uh, and go back to the beginning of how you actually got into this line of work and what are the skill sets, uh, you know, you've had to develop over the course of your career and, and your colleagues and, and competitors have to develop in this space to be effective 
to to operate and to address these sort of challenges. So, I mean, you are not a mining engineer. Uh, you know, you're not an accountant. You have a non-traditional background to come into the industry. How did that uh, How did that get started? Yeah. So um, I think if we take it right back to the beginning, I was. I think like a lot of exploration geologists or people involved in the sector. And I think you are the same, Jamie. I was fascinated by adventure. So I'd yeah. spend my days yeah. being, you know, sh- the books about Shackleton and, uh, and his, uh, his explorations or about Edmund Hillary or Randolph, uh, or, or Randolph Fiennes or I'd read Jack Kerouac novels or Into the Wild. And I, I became, that was my main focus of my childhood, adventuring around uh, the south of England. Um, and I think that really then led me, uh, when I left school at age 17, I went straight into the, I, I won something called a, or was awarded something called a Gatley Commission, where I went into uh, to the army for just a year between school and university. And uh, if I was honest, Jamie, I was terrible. I was a soldier. <laughs> so I, wait, like to place us, so you're about what, 17, 17. years old right now? Yeah. And you get drafted into this one year, <laughs> So this is like one year in the life of the military, what it's like, right? Yeah. So, so I was, you know, thinking I was uh, quite strong, quite fit. I then went and joined this group of uh, people who were far older than me and who were had done a lot of cadets and they really knew what they were thinking about. So, and, and I think making a whole host of mistakes was really helpful. And I ended up doing quite well. I, I got my green beret and I went on to, to lead. Um, I led a team through the French commando course and, which actually in itself was quite amusing because I was, I was over in France doing their version of their commando training and I couldn't speak a word of French. <laughs> day we would have, or most, a lot of days we would have combat training, you know, hand-to-hand combat training or baton combat training. And I'd be standing there not knowing what was going on and suddenly this massive French man would start shouting at us and he would say something like, something like that and as you can tell my French is still terrible um, and suddenly I'd be there scratching my head not knowing what's going on and he would say Allez. and these massive French people would come and start kicking me in the balls and they would start destroying. <laughs> so I ended up I, it was a sort of a I learned French incredibly quickly as a result of that um, but that's just some some context and then uh, from there, I went on to um, to, to university, and I, I became very interested by political, social, and sciences. But uh, uh, during that time, I kept every opportunity I could. I would go and do uh, an adventure. So I, yeah. I would apply for all of the research grants I could get to go and do research projects abroad. So um, I was I got a scholarship to go to Windy scholarship to go and lived in Israel and Palestine, where I had this really jammy deal to go and research ecotourism. So I had no money, but I had a bike, which unfortunately had the saddle nicked on the first day. So I spent most of the time trying not to <laughs> like, a, like a bicycle, just the bicycle. Bicycle. <laughs> so a bicycle going around Israel and Palestine <laughs> researching with a bicycle with no seat. You were going around Israel and Palestine. So how old were you at this point? So then I was, I was probably 20 when I did that. And I so what was the what was the purpose of a of a trip like that? What are you trying to accomplish on something like that? I, was, I think it was mainly to have. I wanted to. Well, I thought first thing I found that part of the world really interesting, and it had all of these political and social dimensions that I wanted to get involved in. 
uh, sorry, not involved in, but wanted to understand more. And this was just a way I could go and finance myself to live there for a summer. Yeah. Uh, and I wrote a paper and it was ended up being published. It was all quite fun. Um, but the other really interesting uh, adventure I did while at university was uh, around a scholarship that I was applying for with the Royal Geographic Society. Yeah. So the RGS in the UK is sort of the premier geographical body. It was the real exploration hub in the Victorian age. And it, it has this very prominent role in, in a adventure and exploration. And we got to the last two of this quite a good scholarship called the Go Beyond Scholarship, where they gave you a Land Rover and you had to go uh, do a piece of geographical research. And we wanted to go up to um, Gazprom, the Russian uh, gas giant, were doing a, a building a pipeline through something called the Yamal Peninsula. And we wanted mm. to go and assess the social and environmental impact of that pipeline. Unfortunately, I think it was a, probably a quite stupid idea and um, we wouldn't have been able to do it anyway, but we got down to the last two and we said, Bugger this, let's, um, let's do it anyway. So we bought a Land Rover. Oh, wait, so you didn't get the scholarship, but you just yeah. decided to do it. Yeah, so we, well, we decided <laughs> to change it. So we, between four of us, you know, four geographers, we got, um, we put together our coppers from you know, working while university and we bought this really beat up old Land Rover that was so beat up we had to, we couldn't drive it onto the ferry, we had to push it because it broke down yeah. before we could. Just- just to interject for a moment there, for our non-European uh, and UK listeners, coppers means money. So you put together your money. <laughs> I want to translate some of the slang. So you got where did, where did you get on the ferry? Sorry. We got on in Newcastle and then we, we got the ferry to Bergen. But we, we, did this, we did this amazing trip and it sort of stayed with me. For that summer, we um, we drove up into the Arctic Circle in June and July, and I can imagine it's a bit like Yukon or up north in Canada, yep. where it never gets dark, not once. And so we we lived, um, we camped every night, and we lived off what we caught from the sea uh, and some really um, lots of uh, tin tuna and corned beef hash and fruit salad and mayonnaise, and I made some cider at home that smelled like diesel so that when it went through the immigration ports, they, no one could tell the difference. It was really <laughs> what, was, what was so remarkable was that because we never had to be anywhere at any point in time, um, the concept of time became really elastic. So we would, we would be hiking at three in the morning. We'd play cards at midnight. We would uh, go swimming in the sea or go fishing throughout the night and, our days were not 24 hours they were as long as the short as we wanted them to be and it was really yeah. time which i can imagine happens up north in canada yeah one of my first jobs was um working in the yukon in canada and it was light 24 7 and i mean you, you i ended up for a while being awake probably like 20 hours a day and then there were people working some people worked at night some people worked in day and there was no real it was hard to differentiate the two and this yeah. went on for about three months and coming back to like, you know, the real world or real time after that was, uh, it was shocking and it was weird. And what I found the weirdest and probably a lot of people who haven't experienced this don't know this. It's not that it's, it's not that it never gets dark. That is strange. It's that for, for me where I was, it always seemed the same time of day. It was like, it was like three in the afternoon all the time. And it was, there was never like variations of sunlight either. Uh, and it was like kind of just being in like Groundhog Day or something like that movie. It was like the same thing over and over and over again. Um, so when you were on this trip, 
Did there end up being a, a geographical or a scientific purpose to this that you were trying to research anything? Or was it more of an interest, just get out there and see the world and get to explore, you know, Russia and that part of part of the world? Yeah, so we were so we were in Norway. We didn't make it as far we were in Norway, Sweden, Denmark. We didn't okay, make it yeah. as close as Finland or Russia, but um I'll be lying if I said that there was any sort of <laughs> academic uh, or interest there. It was, it was mainly for us to experience what it would be like to try and live off the land, you know, and, and we ended up, we'd fish the most the majority of the days, actually, which was really fun and ended up eating some really horrendous things. We had, we had a cookbook called Fish by Hugh Fernley Whittingstall, who's this very quite famous uh, British chef, and mm-hmm. we would eat things like sea <clears throat> or we make uh, pasta out of whelks or you know we ate this most disgusting things you can imagine but it was it, it was just such fun and um yeah it's a real how, how long were you gone for how long did it last so we were about i was there for about six weeks and the rest were there for about for i think two and a half months really so so this is was this, okay you know i'm thinking back to your earlier story uh you mentioned you know a real early interest in adventure and exploration. And that does really parallel why I got into the industry as well. Uh, Up until about the age, I think I've mentioned this before, I was like 12 years old. I always assumed I wanted to be an explorer. Um, And then I was sadly informed that that wasn't an actual job anymore. (laughs) So I had to. So, and I was, I was actually really devastated by this and, and I was like, well, fuck it. I'm just going to be a stockbroker so I can be rich then. And then I can go and explore the world um, on my own. And it wasn't until I was pro- applying to university uh, around 16, 17 years old. It was a friend of a friend of a friend had a, was a geologist. And they were talking about how he was exploring for these projects in Brazil and you know, working in the jungle and traveling all around. And I had really, really struggled uh, in what I was going to do at university. I knew it would probably be sciences. I was good at science. I was good at math. Um, but when I heard the story, it was like, literally it clicked into place. I was like, that sounds sweet. I'm doing that. Like, and I, like, I never looked back. I was like, and I ended up doing mining engineering, not geology, but there was an, a lot of overlap there yeah. because I, you know, I looked at all sorts of things. I looked at being an outdoor guide and doing these college courses and that. And I still remember in the college course and, and no offense to anyone out there who's chosen this path, but they said, you know, it's okay. You can live on $20,000 a year. It'll be, it'll be fine. And I was like, well, no, I can't live on $20,000 a year. Um, and I wanted something that I could still earn a decent living and but, but still, you know, not be tied to a desk, um, still get to travel, still get to see these unique parts of the world uh, and different cultures and, and different environments. And, there, you know, I could be wrong, but like there's few industries in the world that I've ever heard of that offer a better opportunity to, to do that sort of work and to see these sort of crazy, crazy places than the mining industry. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's, um, yeah, I can, I, I, I can agree more. I think, you know, mining and gas, renewable energy, it's, it, it's so, and I, as I said at the beginning, this interface between the world, society, politics and economics, and something that's very real is so fascinating. And then mm. these challenges are so big that, um, you know, and I, I then, after doing my first degree, I then went on to Oxford to, to do my master's. And that's when I really, like, a bit like you, that's when I started to realize, actually, do you know what? This is, uh, these industries, they have so many fascinating challenges and opportunities 
uh, I want to I want to understand this better. And that's you know, that was for me really the tipping point when I I started uh, focusing my research more on um, these the natural resources sector uh, and looking at um, these. I did my research project when I was at Oxford on the relationship between mining companies, governments, and private security companies in, in Kivu, the DRC. And I just thought, I just thought, wow, this is there's some really fascinating challenges here. I want to do this more. Did you explore um, executive outcomes when you were looking at that? Yeah, so I did. Yeah, so um, yeah, so exactly the most famous uh, sort of security company in the mining and natural resources sectors, I would say, and a lot of experience in Africa and, and the DRC, sorry, but you were saying you- Yeah, you're right. So, so executive outcomes, which then um, you know, morphed into Sandline, Tony Buckingham and Tim Spicer. Um, and then that, and had another entity of that called Aegis. Um, it was really this, this relationship whereby a government could pay for security of a piece of land through its mining assets. I thought that was really interesting. A government that wasn't necessarily legitimate could still finance the monopoly of violence over its territory. And I found that um, you know, could be very concerning or also it could be an opportunity to create stability at the same time. So it was a fascinating, uh, I found that relationship really interesting. And what was sort of the outcomes of this research? Did you find that typically um, these resources were being utilized to to bring in these these security forces? And you know, you said you know the monopoly of violence over a territory, which is can be used to good or ill. Did you find that it was improving the safety uh, and the quality of lives of the people impacted by that, or did it you know? Very often, we're hearing about these situations deteriorating and it, it going the other way. And these are the ones that quite quite obviously and quite fairly make the news more often than not. Uh, what was, you know, from an academic perspective and a broader view, what, what did you find there? Yeah, and I think the, the research findings were that it completely depends on the legitimacy of um, the executive that's in charge in that country. Uh, and often we saw that that relationship would only happen when the executive didn't have the support of the majority of the people within that country and therefore was artificially propping themselves up through these means. Um, however, if that was a, a legitimate uh, entity that was able to um, provide more stability, have more training to their police and arms forces, this could be a useful tool. But the majority of times that didn't happen. So when you graduated from university, uh, you know, you have, you know, you've at this point, you've got a master's degree from Oxford. You've traveled a little bit. Um, how did you start applying these skill sets in in your career and in the space in general? Yeah, so um, so when I left university, I I went to work in uh, for a short amount of time in political risk for a company that then got bought by IHS Market. Um, and while I was there, I got approached about a job working in Zimbabwe for a mining company, a junior exploration company uh, that was looking to move into more production called African Consolidated Resources. And this company, I don't know whether you heard of it, Jamie. I um, haven't, no. So it, it had, um, so African Consolidated Resources, AFCR, they found one of the biggest diamond finds in the last hundred years, this incredible alluvial diamond field called Marangi or Chiadzwa. It's unbelievable, unbelievably prospective. 
um, just to give you an idea of the prospectivity that they would have schools around the mine site, uh, around the, sorry, the geological area of interest and kids would be playing and they would pick up stones from the ground and use them to shoot birds out the skies with catapults. And quite often there would be industrial quality diamonds. Uh, <laughs> you know, it was nuts, this, the, you know, how, how prospective this was. But unfortunately, the government, um, they, AFCR didn't get their exploration license converted into a production license. And there was a big uh, legal battle around that um, that played out in Zimbabwe and then in SADAC itself. And in both cases, the company won. But unfortunately, it never got its, uh, its asset back. And I found you know, this relationship between the company and the government extremely interesting. So I what was what was your role there at the company in, in working? Yeah, so I um, so I went over. Um, I worked on a carbon. They had a carbon in pulp tailings retreatment plant that they were building uh, over in right in the bush between Harare and the second city called Bulawayo. So I was based on the mine site. I was maybe twenty one at the time. So I had my dog, I had my pickup truck, I had my motorbike. You know, I had this amazing, <laughs> I lived in a farmhouse just down the road from the mine in the middle yeah. of nowhere. So I would go and I worked as a sort of project manager, but also I would be the guy who interacted with the artisanal miners, the Maricosas, who were operating around the mine site. And I would interact with the, the local government as well. So it was my first real, I'd done a lot of theory, but it was my first real engagement with, okay, I'm speaking to the, in, uh, the informal mining sector here in real life, and I'm speaking to the government who, who run this province. How does that interact with the mine? And it was so interesting. I loved it. Where was, uh, where was the company based? Were they British or were they Canadian? So they were listed on AIM, and they had this this massive volatility um, in terms of their share price as well, which, um, you know, when they had the diamond find, I think their share price went up, you know, 100%, 200%, 300%. It was crazy. And then it fell down and all of these wranglings happened. And there was some, it was really difficult in terms of the relationship with the government at the time as well. Yeah. And so you were on the site, but was most of your job actually working with government or was it with communities or how are you helping them navigate the challenges that they were coming up against on the ground level? So I would so I spend part of my job would be in managing the construction projects around the mine site. And then some of it, which involved ensuring that the artisanal miners around the mine, uh, they didn't lose their livelihoods, but also they didn't encroach upon the assets that we had within uh, within the mines. And also that there was a, a close relationship with the local government as well. That would be quite a, a difficult compromise to reach, I would expect. And, you know, balancing the interests of all those parties involved, uh, especially at, at 21 and dropped in the middle of Zimbabwe. Yeah, and I think what was really good is that one of the reasons that it was okay is that I didn't have any, because I wasn't from the area, I wasn't attached to anyone. No one could place me as easily as you could if you were, right. if I'd been from a specific part or I had, uh, I was part of a specific community. Was there, a, was there an event that, did the company end up pulling out of Zimbabwe in the end uh, and relinquishing their titles or is that is it still in theory held. It was a really sad story and that 
the company relinquished its, uh, it had to relinquish its assets. There was a um, quite a difficult campaign against the company by the government um, and sometimes quite violent as well. Um, and so that, and then eventually it was decided to, to relinquish and give up those assets. But where I was working, which was a project called Pixton Peerless, that was bought by Bass Resources. So, you know, you're, you're in this farmhouse, you're on the mine site, you're 21, as we were saying. What, what was actually day-to-day life like there? Did you have any, uh, you know, particularly interesting or particularly uh, concerning moments? Is there anything... Do you have any good stories, basically, <laughs> from your time there? <laughs> so I, um, you know, this was this was an amazing experience, and I would um, I would get up and I'd run my motorbike through the through the bush, and I would get to the uh, to the mine site, and then after work I would go and for a run. I'll typically wake up a couple of snakes who are getting the last of the sun when they're basking. I also built a little gym for myself out of these balls that used to be in an old sag mill. So I got the workshop to build, uh, to, to weld together some steel reel bar and then tack on these sag mill balls. And every time I got a bit, a little bit stronger, I would add on some more balls onto these. It's <laughs> like a piece of gym equipment. So I That's like a, like a Rocky Balboa moment there, <laughs> almost in like a shitty basement gym. You didn't record a training montage by any chance. <laughs> no. But, um, but actually, I was, um, but I had, you know, in terms of these, uh, there were a few uh, hairy moments out there. And I think one of which I'd, I told all my friends how beautiful and incredible a country Zimbabwe was. And um, two of my friends and, and one of my closest friends came out to visit me and we rented a car, we drove my truck to the setting city, Bulawayo, and I had arranged to stay in the house that Cecil Rhodes lived in when he first came to Zimbabwe. Which was previously Rhodesia. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and then it was bought by Anglo-American and it was there where they used to entertain. But unfortunately, this house was right next door to where President Mugabe's house was in the second city, Bulawayo. And one thing you know when you get to Zimbabwe is you never want to be close to the president's house at nightfall. You can't go near it at nightfall because you get arrested. And these, the drives were next door to each other. And so it was getting darker and darker and I had left it a bit too late. And unfortunately I had left it too late. So it was completely pitched back by the time we got to this, uh, to the, the turnoff between the president's house and where we were staying. Yeah. And just as I was turning into where we were staying, this man taps on the window and says, what are you doing here? And so I said to the, the rest of the, the rest of the guys we were with, hey guys, you know, don't worry about it. I got this. You know, I've been <laughs> I know what I'm doing. Don't worry. So, so I get out the car, you know, and I say, hey man, look, I'm so sorry. Don't worry about anything. I'm I'm a tourist here. I'm a tourist in Zimbabwe. And guess what he said? He goes, You're what? You're a terrorist? You're a terrorist. <laughs> no, no, I'm a tourist. He goes, You're a terrorist. He said, No, I'm a tourist. And then he gets his AK. He, puts the muzzle of the rifle to my chest and cocks the gun. A guy runs into a little shack and brings out a bowl of petrol. And we thought, ah, this is really, it's getting really bad. And this time we're in the shouting match. Tourist, terrorist, tourist, terrorist. It was awful. And eventually, you know, we were able to very slowly calm this thing down. I realized he liked Elvis Presley. And we had a really, in the end, we had a laugh about old Elvis movies and stuff, old Elvis songs. 
but it was really scary. And it was probably due to my really bad hubris that <laughs> this horrible situation happened. But it was, um, yeah, it was quite enlightening. So how do you, how do you de-escalate a situation like that? I mean, what do you, what was the, you know, if, if anyone listening to this were to find themselves in a similar situation, what are the, what are the things you definitely do not want to do besides yelling, I'm a, I'm a terrorist at a, at a guard. (laughs) (laughs) So I think, um, you know, I think like in all things, it's, uh, it's it's related to empathy and uh, demonstrating that you're exactly the same as them, you know, as, as this group who are, demonstrating the similarities as opposed to the differences and being able to draw on um, those similarities and demonstrate like them you know, a family or whatever it may be that will be those points of connection that you have with people and that's that's what i found been very helpful i'd say i haven't been very necessarily very good at it, good at it but that's what i would advise anyway based on my experience so despite uh all chances to the contrary this didn't dissuade you from working in these type of environments at all you stayed in Zimbabwe for some time and and then you've continued to work in developing nations in conflict zones in you know very challenging parts of the world where most people never get the experience to visit or most people listen to this podcast likely won't uh where did you head after that and what were sort of the next steps yeah so I I um when I left uh, Zimbabwe, I then went to the Kurdish region of Iraq. So that's the region between Iran, um, Turkey, and, and, and Iraq. It's, a, it's, an ind- it's an autonomous nation within the state of Iraq. And I went to work on the oil fields there because I wanted to build up my experience, not just in mining, but in oil and gas as well. And there were some really interesting challenges there around the state of Iraq owns the oil. However, Kurdistan was a nation uh, that was starting to develop quite a, a good oil and gas industry there. And we saw that with um, people like Perenko or Gulf Keystone Petroleum. And Kurdistan had started to sell oil. However, the money, the, the, the promised budgetary funds from Baghdad were never coming through to Kurdistan. And it was really strangling the issue. And so quite similar to when I was in uh, Zimbabwe, I realized that actually that even though there's um, a lot of uh, mineralization in the ground and people know where this is, we understand the geology very well, the risks are not engineering, geology, law, or finance. They're above the ground. They're related to politics and they're related to society. And that was really started a fire within me that has been burning uh, ever since. So, when I finished that, I ended up, I really wanted to improve my uh, financial modeling ability. And I came back to London for a couple of years. Uh, and I think I had a girlfriend at the time that wanted me to come home. So I um, came and worked in corporate finance in London. But I still had this, this fire or this, I really wanted to understand more about these above ground risks. So I, I, I sought out a job that would allow me not to work in, in industry because I'd seen a bit of that side of things, but work within government. Uh, in emerging and developing countries, so embedded within these entities. And I, I found that in a company called Adam Smith International. And this is where we met. So when when you interviewed me, uh, I was potentially going to be replacing you uh, on the ground in Afghanistan, working with the uh, Afghanistan Ministry of Mines and government, helping to develop the mining code and all the regulatory and impl- implementation around that. 
And you'd been there, I think it was for almost two years at that point or 18 months or so. Yeah. Yeah. I think I've been there for a while. So I think uh, it's best if you start by tell us, you know, what is Adam Smith International? What was its, what is its mandate and what they do? And then sort of what your role was within that and, and what, what that consisted of. Yeah, so I think a really simple way to describe it is that Adam Smith was a, Adam Smith International was, is a it's like a strategic or management consultancy, but instead of focusing on uh, companies, it focuses on supporting economic and government reform in developing countries. So uh, it has it works in a range of areas, but it would support the development of the private sector. Um, so it could be advising on infrastructure or energy or resilience to climate change or setting up taxation regimes or public financial management. Um, and it's not just about developing these strategies or policies, but the implementation of them, ultimately with the aim of supporting developing countries um, to generate greater economic growth and doing that responsibly and sustainably. And you worked in particular within the extractives group there. Is that right? Yeah. So I worked in the mining and oil and gas practice, um, and eventually working up to co-run the, the, the practice with a really impressive colleague of mine called Julia Baxter, who you may be interested in interviewing at some point. She's really uh, impressive. But this practice really focused on, on governance. So how a country can manage its natural resource wealth for the benefit not only of the current citizens, uh, but the future citizens as, as well, while at the same time managing potential downside social and environmental risks. And that was really split around the economics, the environmental impact, and social justice as well, and issues around them. And that was typically working for clients like the World Bank, the Asian Development Bank, uh, the UK Department for International Development, the Australian Department for Development. Um, so the way I understand it is that when a group like the World Bank or, or any, of these, uh, any of these bodies that is essentially administering or, or giving investment or aid to a company, to a country rather, they rarely just hand it to the country and say, all right, Afghanistan, have at it. Here's $50 million to develop literacy within women. They hire consulting groups uh, such as Adam Smith International to go in and help administer that capital and ensure that it sort of finds the best pathways and really supports the initiatives that it's trying to, that it was intended for. Um, so you were, I mean, you were on the ground in a lot of different places helping to administer that capital and, and build uh I'm not sure the right word, but build the framework so that company countries can can sort of govern themselves and govern themselves effectively and build the capacity in these areas. So, where were some of the places you actually ended up spending time, and and what what does that actually look like when you're on the ground? What are the, the sort of things you find yourself doing? Yeah, so I was um, I worked extensively in South Asia and. Uh, heavily in Afghanistan. I worked a lot in Myanmar or Burma, as the British government call it. And I worked um, a bit in Pakistan and some areas of Africa, namely Sierra Leone. And 
my work really focused around this concept of governance. And I think it's worth just defining that uh, for, for your listeners. And I think a good way to define it is setting up the institutions, the rules, and the practices that determine how a company, how, how um, company executives and government officials make decisions and engage and affect citizens, countries, and the environment they inhabit. And within uh, the mining and oil and gas sectors, in terms of supporting those institutions to govern, um, we can see that through policy development. So looking at more strategic level, what are the trade-offs that you're gonna be making around how the sector's developed? Um, how, what is gonna be the interface between the private sector and the government? That's typically through taxation. How are the contracts with the private sector gonna be managed and inspected against? Um, how are the communications gonna happen between uh, the private sector, the government and civil society? And how, the, how is the revenue going to ma be managed once it's received and redistributed, not just for the current citizens, but those future citizens as well? Because remember, this is finite. You know, you've got right. one shot to, con to convert a subsoil asset into cash and make the most out of that. And then can you do it environmentally sustainably? And there are a number of uh, tools that are, are governments, uh, in a government's toolkit in order to do, to do that, which may be worth talking through a bit. Yeah, I mean, let's let's talk about that because, and you know, we've talked about this in the past. But your role wasn't really to go in and to to write these codes and to do this to do this stuff yourselves, but to support the host country's government in in being able to uh, sort of create these uh, effective institutions and enact these changes and be self sufficient. So, so what's that actually like to to go into these places, uh, be they Afghanistan or Myanmar? work closely with the people who have either been elected or, or appointed into government and and like how do you i mean how do you even begin in a place like afghanistan which at the time you were there and and still obviously is a pretty intense conflict zone uh is struggling to even keep its citizens safe and you're trying to build uh policy and institutions focused on resource extraction and, you know, economic development for the future and thinking five, 10, 20 years in advance. How, what's that look like? I mean, that's uh yeah, well, that's a pretty that's good question. That's a, <laughs> a problem. I know <laughs> I'm trying to wrap my head around it even as I say it. Uh, so I don't know if well, you're going to be able to answer this quickly, but yeah. What, what is well, it, what does it look like to go, to go in there and try to affect these changes and work with people? So, um, so these, uh, so these systems are incredibly complicated. So to answer the, the question, I think it's worth splitting out. We have a government and in Afghanistan, that government was transitioning from an owner and operator of state owned assets. They were, uh, the mining company was, was the government in its own right towards being a, um, policymaker, investment facilitator, and regulator. Um, and that transit, so we, we were looking at supporting that transition. And, and then, so first of all, where do you start? You start with the ultimate aim. So what are you trying to achieve? At the country level, you're really trying to maximize the net present value 
of future benefits of your sub soil resources. And that can be through jobs, economic linkages, infrastructure, or wider regional development. And they all fit in with each other. And to do that, first of all, we would look at uh, developing policy, understanding what the trade-offs are going to be. So for example, how are the benefits going to be shared between the nation, the region, and local communities directly affected by the activity? What is going to be the share that is provided to the current citizens against the future citizens? What is that intergenerational equity look like? Because remember, as I said, this is finite. Once it's gone, it's gone. And how do you do that without having a large social or environmental problems? So how do you make sure this is a net benefit? And there are a number of tools that governments have at their disposal, disposal to, to do this. Namely, firstly, ownership. So who can own those uh, assets or who is allowed to operate on them? Who is allowed to work within those companies who are operating that, so local content policies? What is going to be the relation, economic relationship between government and, and, and company? So what is the fiscal structure going to look like? What's, how are you going to schedule the tendering of those assets? Or are you going to let people uh, take a claim to them uh, independently without a tender schedule? How are you going to manage the revenue? And how are you going to safeguard environmental and social factors? So that was a real dump. And trying to fit that into... Um, working on the ground, we typically, when I was in Afghanistan, we were looking at strategy development. And to do that, we tried to understand what were the key pinch points throughout the citizens of the country. And this came out with some really interesting findings. You would have thought that people were concerned about uh, jobs or revenue, but actually one of the highest concerns was around cultural heritage. So sometimes these things aren't as uh, obvious as you would have thought. We looked at, sorry, man. And is, is cultural heritage, is that around, you know, extractive industries potentially destroying sites that are of importance to a culture or, or is it more like uh, economic changes that destroy traditional industries and traditional ways of life and things people have grown up with and value quite significantly? So our experience was it was both interestingly. So the, the potential to destroy pieces of cultural value or something that you wouldn't be able to get back if it was destroyed due to uh, old remain, uh, ruins in the ground or remains. We saw yep. that in Afghanistan. Um, and, and also the potential for this to change the culture of the place that you're working in. Um, when I was in Afghanistan, well, I was specifically looking at how, um, how the ministry could manage the contracts they've got. So we would do, we brought people in from all of the provincial officers that would be in the inspectors. We conducted training programs with them and then we brought back and had a professional panel that would then five months later assess their competencies on the ground and uh, related to a number of examinations, whether they actually had the uh, professional ability to carry out those inspections. We also looked at the most efficient way that would encourage investment in terms of taxation regimes and also some other aspects to do with policy development as well. But this was developed through the government in this country, which was um, very rewarding, but also very challenging at times as well. So two questions. Did you see um, the government and, and 
the people on the ground charged of implementing these things, able to pick up the torch and run with it and, and be improve over the time you were there and, and effectively apply this? Yeah, yes, definitely, especially around, and I think this has been proven um, with regards to our, the, the work we did in contract management. I think some aspects are, for example, fiscal regime work is incredibly complicated and requires a very specialized base level of um, economic understanding of financial modeling ability to be able to monitor to model those aspects properly and that, that within um, certain ministries there would only be there would be very specialized individuals who were able to do that and not everyone would be able to to get to that level required to understand these complexities yeah so, and so that was that was a challenge did you see it i mean did you see it work did you see it attracting foreign investment were extractive industries coming into afghanistan and trying to work in in that sort of environment or was the, I mean, the war going on at the time just too uh, overwhelming for, you know, most companies to, to, to justify going in? Well, it was, it was really, um, it, w- it was very interesting. I, I chaired a meeting at a round table at Chatham House while I, during my time in Afghanistan. And, and that included some large operators, uh, some civil society groups, um, some uh, NGO groups and some government groups, and one of the interesting findings was that there was there's a lot of interest. The Chetian Copper Belt and the geological prospectivity is so large, but in terms of the security, people said, "Well, actually, we can if the cost, if the revenue is there, we will pay more to secure this asset. We will we will secure it." What we're concerned about is business interruption, contract frustration, expropriation. So, I mean, you've done this sort of work in a variety of companies. Obviously, uh, Adam Smith International has worked all over the world. What are some of the places that you've seen have done a real, what are the, some of the countries that have done a really good job of this, of sort of revamping legislation uh, and applying it effectively to, uh, you know, attract New, co- new investment to attract companies coming in. Are there any examples, sort of textbook examples of, yes, this is, this is a great way to do that? Um, I think a good way, so I, so I think uh, the Natural Resource Governance Institute, which is based here, well, it's actually based all over the world, um, but they do a really good index around governance of the extractive industries called the Resource Governance Index, and they split it out through a number of components, namely value realization, management of revenue, and the enabling environment for for investment and for the private sector to operate. Uh, And the last uh, index they did, or last study they did, which involves an incredible amount of quantifiable data, some some of the countries that really came out as doing very well were Mongolia, India, Indonesia, and Botswana, who are who would typically thought to be frontier or emerging markets. So that's what uh, data sort of plays out. That's interesting you say that because I, um, and not knowing a ton about it, had always thought India was a very difficult place for extractive companies to to move into and to work in. Well, I think, you know, recently um, India uh, has really invested in its 
ease of doing business. So it's it's gone from being over 100 to uh, jumping up to, I think it's now 77 on the ease of doing business indicator. It, it's really uh, improving the business environment. It's really impressive uh, what's going on there. And it's, it's a country that I'm going to be focused on in the future. The flip side of that is what happens when a country actually gets that wrong? Like, what does it look like when initiatives have failed and companies are unable to attract foreign investment? They're unable to uh, maybe adequately govern their resources and, and, and investment. Um, I think it's worth bringing in um, a discussion that came uh, through uh, the academic literature in the 1980s and then it was taken on by Jeffrey Sachs and Walker Warner in the 2000s and that's around the resource curves. So there was typically you would have expected that there would be a correlation between natural resource wealth and economic development. However, econometric studies demonstrated that actually this relationship was inverse in some jurisdictions. And as um, McKinsey did a study revisiting that a number of years ago, and it's a bit more nuanced than potentially the original analysis suggests. But there are three key factors why um, why it's so important to get this right and that how natural resources could actually be a curse or a blessing. And I think the first of those really is around yoking your economy to uh, a volatile cyclical global marketplace. So you mm -hmm. can have a large part of your GDP that's dependent on the global price of a commodity. We see that heavily with Nigeria and that requires a lot of management, a lot of stabilization. There was also, um, a lot that came out in, I think, the 70s or 80s around the internal economic stresses that this could put, that a large natural resource exports could put on a country due to something called Dutch, Dutch disease, whereby if you are exporting a commodity, if you are really hammering the exports of a commodity, that could raise your, um, your exchange rates and therefore gouge your uh, other industries like agriculture or manufacture that you may be trying to export because they become uncompetitive. But lastly, um, and I think this is something that plays out very interestingly with regards to above ground risk, the prevalence of large amount of resource rent, surplus, the surplus above the, um, the amount it costs to produce can lead to um, groups taking that, that money or can lead to poor policy practices, corruption, uh, and this idea that we want to make hay while the sun's shining as opposed to waiting for the next downturn. And I, to me, that's the thing that I find I hear about the most, right, is these countries that all of a sudden have, you know, extreme amount of wealth coming in and it gets poorly uh, ad uh, allocated, I would guess, and sort of can breed corruption. And we've seen this in various countries in Africa. I mean, Arguably, we've seen this in Venezuela, um, in a lot of different places. And is there a way to combat that problem? And 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 whose responsibility is that? Is it, I mean, is it the governments? Is it the international communities? Is it the companies that are trying to do business in those environments? So I think some of the lessons that I've learned around the governance of these industries and some of the challenges that are involved really relate to the government being the manager or the custodian of the assets on behalf of not just the current citizens, but the future citizens. And we, this is something we, you, we talked about quite a bit throughout this podcast. And reiterating that 
the government has one chance to convert something beneath the ground into capital and then do the most for it for the benefit of the whole society. And I think in terms of some of those core challenges, there's been real issues around politicization of the industry. Um, politicians have been able to use the emotional draw of something that belongs to a state to be able to get a, a constituency behind them that in order to go against either a political opposition or to go uh, against a company, whatever serves the political purposes the best. Um, that politicization also fuels substantial expectation around jobs, infrastructure, revenue in the immediate term. And this is principally due to the timescales between an extractive project and the political timescales being so far off. So a political timescale may be five years and a project may last for 30, 40, 50 years. So every what we often see is that a new uh, political group will come into position and they will try and renegotiate the contract in order to let the previous, their opposition look bad or to gain political capital with their constituency. Right. And that's been a big problem. We see that a bit with Shell, with, uh, with the opposition in Nigeria at the, at the moment looking to renegotiate the contract. And I see this time and time again. And so this is the bedrock of basically resource nationalism. This is the, the problem behind uh, assets being taken over by governments or, or the contracts on them renegotiated and, and companies in the lurch. And basically they've poured however many millions or sometimes hundreds of millions of dollars into these assets. And then all of a sudden the rug gets pulled out from underneath them and it's a different deal and they're playing a totally different game than what they signed up for. Yeah. And I think it's worth drawing into this some work that was done by an economist in the 1970s called Vernon around um, a concept called the obsolescing bargaining model. So this economist said that at the beginning of a multinational country, company going into an emerging market, that emerging market wants the capital, they want the technology, and they want the management competence in order to convert their natural resources into, into revenue. However, once, um, so at the beginning, the company has all the power. That's the point, it has the most power. However, once it starts construction and it starts pouring money into the ground, the power then shifts. And the power is completely held by the government to a large extent. Uh, and the company is, is, is on the hook. Um, and that's changed slightly to something called the political bargaining model, but that's, um, that's a key part of, of these challenges. We also see the incredible opaqueness of, of how these markets operate so that people don't really know necessarily who they're working with or who the beneficial owner is. Um, at the same time as managing these vast expectations around jobs when typically the mining industry doesn't actually provide many jobs. It's highly skilled and it's, that's not the thing that will, uh, that will most benefit a community. It's usually the revenue that will come back to them from the government. Um, and also the, how these factors play out in terms of geopolitics. And as we said earlier, this is a game that's not necessarily just about private sector to government. It's quite often about state to state. And when there are um, drivers at play that are far higher than merely the, the company that is being uh, moved around. And I think some of those, so, so in, in summary, 
the politicization of the industry, the timelines, the change in timelines are between the political cycle and the project cycle, the expect management of expectations or the the the, uh, the increasing of expectations, the shift in bargaining power, the opaque nature of the markets, and the competition playing out at state level means that this is a very difficult place to uh, this is a, a, these, there are some severe challenges involved in natural resource extraction in these in these countries. All right, I'm trying to think of the best way to uh, to respond to that because you know there are no. I think this is very important for companies to hear, and I think it's very easy for these sort of situations to be addressed in, you know, I have a six point plan on how to get into this country and this is what we'll do and this is what it will work and this is how it will work. Uh, and people often do not appreciate the complexity uh, and the, the, um, the often conflicting challenges and points of view involved in, in anything like this. And, you know, that's why, having experts in this space like yourself and the people at Adam Smith International is very key. And I think resource companies are starting to realize that certainly the major companies, you know, the very big mining companies and oil and gas companies, but where I am in Vancouver, I'm seeing more so some of the smaller companies are starting to gain an appreciation for these challenges and, and the skill sets that are required to implement uh, solutions to them. And, I know there's going to be a lot of people out there who are listening to this interview and thinking that is very cool. Um, I would love to work in something like this. I would love to be involved in these sort of things. And, you know, I'd like to just give them an idea of, you know, what your life was actually like when you were, you know, addressing these challenges on the ground and working with governments. So, I mean, for example, when you were in Afghanistan, you know, what is, what is the day-to-day -day life like in a situation like that? Where are you living? How are you getting to work? I mean, how do you manage the very obvious risks of working in what essentially is a war zone? So, um, so I get asked this question um, quite a bit. And um, it, I think the first thing to say that it is, um, it, it is typically exact very similar to working anywhere you know it's people are going around their lives their families are going to school buying the shopping having dinner part having dinner with friends and family and it's quite mundane however there are these real moments of real um excitement or fascination or uh, moments when you go wow i'm doing some really um interesting work in a really amazing place Kabul's so beautiful. The sky is so piercingly blue. It's in this natural desert surrounded by mountains, which through a lot of the year, they're snow-topped. And it's, it's a really stunning place. But so my life there was, was usually quite mundane, going to the office in the Ministry of Mines and Petroleum or the Ministry of Commerce and Industries or going at another office, you know, wearing a suit. It was all this you know, quite unexciting stuff. But then there were these flashes where you would be invited to go and present on your work to the president or you would I would go and take a plane to a really remote part of the country to go and chair a round table on private sector development after which I think I, in one instance I was running late to catch my plane home and I was with a guy on the bus and he said hey and don't worry the, the plane will wait and I said no, no no the plane won't wait I need to get there 
only to realize that he owned the airline and we flew pilots, <laughs> you know, it's all, you know, so these really fun uh, things. And, you know, just to give you an idea that thinking about some of these, uh, at, at one point it's very similar, on another point it's not. So when I was in Afghanistan, I set up a touch rugby uh, group. Um, and so I found this playing field to go and play on. And, um, but the thing I didn't realize that, that there was no, um, there's no lawnmowers. The only way we could get, I could get the grass cut in this, in this field was to call up a shepherd and then get into the <laughs> block on this, on, this pitch, right, on this football pitch. And so before we played, I would have to call him up and say, um, oh, hi, you know, do you mind moving your sheep off the field today at this afternoon because we want to play a game? And as you can imagine, it, it, it ended up in an incredibly slippery and often quite unpleasant game of um, <laughs> rugby. But, um, but, you know, so it's, it, life is both, um, sim- you know, very similar to it is normally. And at the same time, it's also uh, very strange. So, but I, I loved my time out there and I thought it was really, um, you know, I, I learned a hell of a lot from being there. You know, who were the kind of people, um, who were the kind of expats and foreigners that you found yourself working with there on a day-to-day basis? Were they sort of uh, analyst types like yourself or military or, uh, you know, various security services and intelligence agencies? What what were the kind of people you ran into day-to-day, either through work or, I mean, socializing? I assume there were parties or restaurants or, you know, as you say, normal things in life that a 20 something year old wants to do when they're, uh, you know, not working. Yeah. So, <laughs> so it had a very, when I was in Kabul, there was a very vibrant, uh, work hard, play hard sort of attitude. And the, the, the socializing was quite similar to working, to going to like a university frat party. It wasn't. And um, that's part of the reason I ask because I've heard some stories about the, uh, <laughs> alleged debauchery of Kabul in the in the off hours. <laughs> so, so it was you know there, and I think there was a really good. Um, there was a, actually there was a very good French series that captured it very well. I think called Kabuli Kitchen, um, um, where it's the the opening scene is an ambassador jumping onto a diving board and doing a running bong naked into a swimming pool, surrounded by <laughs> like. You know, it's very senior people. But um, now, in terms of the people I hang out with, I usually uh, I hang out with uh, other people working in similar sort of developmenty type fields, or I would work with people um, who are working in NGOs a lot. Uh, I came to some very close friends with uh, with a group who then went on to set up a company. Uh, also, people involved in journalists. I spent a lot of time um, with, with the journalist. Um, as well so it was a it was a really fun eclectic mix so you were only in afghanistan for a few years um you left adam smith international a couple years ago you've done a lot of things since then something you've spoken to me about uh in the past is a project you worked on called extractives hub could you kind of give us an overview of extractives hub and and what that is and, and what it's for so when i um when i left uh Adam Smith International. I then went on and um, I, I carried on working on a on a project called the Extractors Hub, and it really came out of this idea that when I was when we were working in all of these countries around the world, one of the things that kept on coming up was that governments would say to us, 
what we really want to know is what our neighbors up to, or if I'm sitting here in Burma, what, how are they solving these problems in Peru? If I'm in Sierra Leone, how do they structure their taxation regime in Botswana? I want to understand what's their local content policy in Kenya versus what we're doing here in Indonesia. You know? So they, and also government officials were saying, actually, we're not, we don't know what we don't know. So we don't know what uh, training or what we should be looking for and searching for on the internet. So we build a tool that anyone can access, www.extractorshub.org, which contains pretty much all of the policies, legislation uh, related to the mining and oil and gas sector for most of the countries around the world. And then we took that a step further by going and partnering with a group called resourcecontracts.org where we were able to aggregate uh, contracts that had been signed between the public sector in that company in that country and the company so that people could actually start looking at contract terms as well and make that searchable really so that's very interesting so is this something that anyone can access can i go on that and sign in do i have to buy a membership how does it how does it work yeah so so it's um it was funded by the department for international development here in the uk and there and that allows uh, that we have over well they have over 30,000 users and you can just go on um, uh, register for free and then use the site that, that's it you know anyone can access it who do you who is the ideal user is this you know someone like me a mining investor that's looking to get a better idea of the sort of regulatory taxation political environment regarding mining in oil and gas in a country or is it people working in other governments as you'd as you'd mentioned or is it companies that are potentially exploring the idea of moving into into a new country, into a new environment? So the real aim of this was to uh, provide a platform for governments. You know, and the okay. real aim is to connect governments with either each other. You know, so the director of mining policy in Ghana, can we would connect them to the director of mining policy in Nigeria, whatever it may be, but anyone can access it. Um, and that's, you know, that's, that was part of the ethos behind the project, and it's been incredibly successful. Yeah, you know, that level of transparency probably adds a lot of value to it in of itself. And I think you kind of summarized it well earlier, helping to show people what they don't know they don't know and what they could be doing and and sort of putting it in a centralized database because, you know, it's you know, I I spend a lot of time looking at a lot of, you know, geological data uh and comparing various companies working in different environments and once you get that information in one space, in one place where you can adequately and accurately compare it, like it's really a force multiplier in terms of yeah. value, I find. And <clears throat> you almost don't even realize it until you actually see it next side by side by side. All right, carrying on with your story. So what, do you, what is it you're doing today and what led you to that? Because you're no longer with Adam Smith International. You're, you've taken a bit of a turn and a very interesting one. So can you tell us a bit more about that? While I was working, I was doing my MBA along, alongside that from distance. And, um, having been to many exotic places around the world, I thought Dundee, which is probably one of the... <laughs> Dundee was the place to go. So I'm I've joking. been to Dundee, actually. I'm very aware <laughs> of that. Yeah. So I'm joking. No, in the, it has a very impressive uh, center for energy, petroleum, mineral legislation, and policy. very good natural resources sector, and very focused on 
renewable energy as well as the extractive industries. It trains a, a lot of individuals who go on to become ministers of mines in their country of origin and it's sort of very um, impressive law school there as well. So I completed up my MBA and I focused on, I, I, I added, um, and I did a lot more investigation into renewable energy while I was there as well, specifically uncovering a lot more and investigating a lot more about um, India and some of the high growth markets around uh, uh, in Asia as well. And I think that's where, for me, um, that's where I'm going to be aiming um, the opportunities going forward. Can you elaborate a little bit more on that about what the sort of what you're trying to do now in terms of I know you're building out a business uh, focused on India and that part of the world. What does that actually mean? Tourism strategy is focused on high growth markets in Asia. So around a trillion dollars of investment in renewable energy will go to the slice of uh, slices of land between the Indian Ocean and the Pacific Ocean, which is why we call it two oceans. Around a third of the world's unexplored copper deposits is within that landmass. Um, and there are substantial oil and gas assets as well. But not only that, but countries on average that we're looking at within that area are looking at around 40% GDP growth over the next five years. So what we do is we uh, identify potential high return natural resources projects within this, this landmass. We assess the socio-economic benefit and the costs for these projects. We look at above ground, the above ground risks over the life of those projects, and that includes political, geopolitical compliance, regulatory and social risks. And we take an approach of partnership. And you know, we talked about some of those lessons learned earlier around the incompatible timescales between politics and natural resource projects. The, mm -hmm the high expectations, the opaque marketplaces, we take approach to try and combat that by looking at partnership. So in these projects, we have the government, the private sector or the investor and civil society. If we can start to rally uh, around uh, aligning risk and reward throughout the project's life cycle between these parties, we can start to say that every time this contract is frustrated or it's changed, there will be less of the pie to go around for everyone. So we have this total, what does success look like? Then every time we add more cost onto that, the, um, how much that, that success is gonna get less and less and less and less and less. And it's really communicating and rallying around that shared vision that is crucial. And um, it's, it's the approach that we take. Um, and are you typically working for governments in that region? Are you working with the companies or investors that are trying to move in? Or, or are you guys allocating your own money and your own capital to these, these projects? So we are primarily working, at the moment we're working for impact investing funds. Mm -hmm. And we're predominantly working for the investor in that situation. And then we, when we looked at projects, maybe down the line we would look at adding our own capital as well. I think it might be worth... Uh, Describing quickly to people what impact investing is. So um, it's quite a broad question. Impact investing could be uh, any investing whereby you're having looking for a financial return, but you're also looking uh, to make an environmental, social, and governance, uh, economic and governance benefit as well. So you're not just grading the success of your investments just by pure financial means 
but you're looking at other aspects to that as well, typically around social progress, economic development, uh, and making sure there's no environmental degradation. And I think that's, it's, it's a massively growing area of investment as well. You know, I, I, I look at this sort of thing from, from two perspectives. Uh, one is that that's uh, quite virtuous, uh, and there's obviously a lot of value to be added there. And the other is from a lot of investors and investors that I know purpose, personally that would say, I don't care. That's not why I invest my money. Um, but I do think it's worth sort of commenting on that. And Tom, I'm interested in your opinion on this. Is Do you think this is going to be something that countries, uh, uh, particularly these sort of developing countries, are starting to expect from investors that want to come into that into that part of the world that want to acquire these assets or invest in them or, or develop an asset that in order to to get it to uh, to allocate capital effectively these things the expectation is going to be more and more that these things are considered and addressed up front yeah and I think this comes right back to this point around aligning risk and reward between the partners. So the fact that the benefit from impact investing, that social benefit, that economic benefit, and that's ensuring that there's no environmental degradation is all about de-risking that investment and ensuring that if you have a partnership between these entities, that that can, go, that can supersede the political changes that will happen. And so for me, this isn't about just um, a nice to have. I think it's crucial and should be at the heart of any investment. And that's what success should ultimately look like, not just a financial return. What do you, when you see investors or companies moving into a new region, you know, often these frontier regions, often these conflict regions, what do you see them, what are common pitfalls you see them falling into? What do you see the mistakes that are often made that couldn't could probably be avoided, uh, and you know, on the flip side of that, what do you see the successful companies who are trying to work in these areas do right? So I think that there's often an asymmetry of knowledge between the company and the government, and that can produce quite a combative approach. That can produce quite a um, uh, a negotiation that's about getting the maximum take for, for that project. And often that can be unpicked throughout the life of a, a long-term life of a mining project. And then once that's realized that there's the company is taking a big slice of the economic rent that should be going to the citizens, that will quite often result in an above ground risk event, you know, expropriation, raising taxes. But often when that's, when there's more uh, openness and partnership, that can be superseded. Uh, and often we see, um, looking at how a deal is structured, if you're able to structure a deal in terms of a progressive tax regime, i.e., if this is successful, we are all going to take more of a, a piece of the pie out of it, then that is far better than trying to take as much as you can early on in a project. So it sounds like there's a very large, I mean, education component to that, right? In terms of both sides, maybe education is not the right word, but both sides really kind of laying on the in table what their goals are and incentives uh, and desired outcome is, and then trying to find that middle ground so that both sides walk away happy 
and that that goal should be the same between these three parties you know communities or civil society government and the private sector ultimately should have a similar ultimate goal in that project and the government and the company can go every time that there's a delay or there's a raise taxes the government can go to the um the, the company can go to the government and say, look, this is what we're ultimately trying to achieve here. Every time you do this, it reduces the value of this project to your country. A lot of the issues um, that I hear about from the company's perspective in, in working in these countries uh, or in frontier markets in general is corruption. Corruption is something we always have to be very cognizant of, uh, and it's something that is not uncommon in a lot of these developing nations. And what makes it very difficult, I find, for a Western company is often you are competing against uh, either local companies in some countries or uh, companies from other jurisdictions uh, that do not get held to the same international standards, do not have uh, the same anti-bribery legislation in place, all, all these sort of things that we consider, you know, good business in the West or ethical business. How do you, how do you take these best practices and still compete in a country where they're not necessarily enforced to the same degree? I think this is really difficult. Um, and I think it's worth saying here that corruption is not about people handing over brown bags of cash, even though that does happen. And I, I think especially when we look at these, um, the mis misalignment of the political cycles uh, against the project timescales, this is something that ha can happen time and time again as, as uh, a, change in own a change in ownership of a concession prompts, uh, can prompt a corruption event. But, but more often it's around favors. So I am in a position of power and I can give you a non-monetary benefit due to my position of power. And over the course of time, especially local companies and local governments will have built up a big uh, favor bank or favor credit, favor debt within, their, within that country. And that will typically be between senior businessmen and the government or uh, and therefore, that debt is, um, is may not be monetary, but it may be um, other, other aspects. And as a result, it's a company coming into that often doesn't have the favor bank uh, to be able to deal with it. And in the past, we've seen that being managed by having very close relationships with ministers or presidents. However, the era of the 30-year minister or president is no longer, I, I don't think it's going to continue to happen and that won't be a good way to mitigate some of this risk and I think the only real way is to be very honest and then to align the risk and rewards throughout these parties and be very open around the expectations and what you're trying to achieve between government civil society and the private sector and and the company and as there's more legislation and more transparency into the sector people won't be able to get away with these practices as much anymore and I think going back to this principle of partnership and expectation management, that is the heart of being able to operate in these places. You know, it sounds like, uh, to something I was mentioning earlier, it does sound like 
whether fairly or unfairly, a lot of the onus of this does fall on the company uh, coming into these frontier regions to to engage in the right way, to uphold the right standards and to communicate these plans effectively. And, you know, there's a lot of responsibility on their shoulders uh, to... You know, there's a, there's a bigger challenge to work with governments effectively and build a plan than they would have found operating in the United States or in yeah. or in Europe or in Australia or any other of these places. And I think that's probably something that, um, whether they're junior exploration companies or multi-billion-dollar operators, the companies need to be cognizant of. And you know, from an investor's perspective. You know, you need to be, if you're going to be investing in the company going into Myanmar or Iran or Venezuela or what have you, you need to under, you need to be sure that they understand the risks and the challenges that they're taking on. Um, Tom, you know, if you were looking to allocate your own money, invest in a mining company or an exploration company that's working in one of these challenging jurisdictions, what are some of the things you would look to see management doing? Uh, questions you would ask to feel comfortable that they are appreciating the challenges of operating in these environments? Well, I think, first of all, is not viewing the socioeconomic side of mining as CSR. I believe this is critical and a cornerstone of being able to operate in these environments. So I think stage one, understanding what socioeconomic success looks like throughout a project life. And that's not related to the number of schools built and the number of qualities, kilometers of road, that's linking it to what are, uh, how ultimately can we make uh, this, uh, this project have the biggest benefit it, ha- it can. So that's on one side, but also understanding the potential social and economic costs as well that could get, come from it and doing some very rigorous analysis of that, which I know that very responsible companies already do. But also, secondly, seeing not seeing the government as the entity, as the enemy, sorry, but seeing them as, as a partner and having this steering committee with the government and senior representatives of civil society. And Donald's work, um, Donald Bray's work, is, would be very good at that element of it. So I think those are two core areas that I would look at. I would also look at the economic um structure of that deal and how progressive it is are we going to share in this project being a success or is it going to just uh, or, or are we going to are we are we going to try and take as much money out of this as, as early stage as possible to de-risk us and i think if it's the, if it's the latter then it's going to be a more successful project are there any parts of the world right now that you are particularly excited about in terms of extractive industries you know that if you were running an exploration company or a mining company that you would be thinking about moving into or building relationships in or, or maybe even just watching for how things are developing? So our, you know, the reason we set up Two Oceans is we are very interested by the potential opportunity for responsible and sustainable investments in these high growth markets in Asia. And that could be in Mongolia, Indonesia, India, Sri Lanka, Myanmar. That's where that's where we we see there's a really large opportunity um, where some of these risks can be managed, and we're very excited about it. All right. 
as well as you know, others in the region, Cambodia, Vietnam, Philippines. But um, you know, that, that's, where, that's where our focus is. All right. So, Tom, something that we've talked about a bit in the past, uh, you know, I know you're an avid reader. If people are interested in learning more about uh, this sort of work and, and these sort of challenges, are there any books or reading material you'd recommend to sort of broaden the education? And I, I think I'm mostly asking for my own, uh, for my own help. Cause you know, this is something I've always had an interest in and I always learn a lot talking to you, but you know, it'd be good to be able to sort of expand my knowledge there and, and get a, a, a more of a breadth on these sort of challenges. Um, yeah, I think that uh, a good, so in terms of operating in some of these more challenging environments, a really good book about business and um, starting companies in these areas would be Baghdad Business School by Henrik von Gerning. He's a, it's a really good uh, read about how he set up, um, uh, set up his business in Iraq. Really fascinating. Uh, in terms of the mining industry, and I, I think you and I have talked about this in the past, I love the big score. I think that's an amazing yeah, story yeah. about Voices Bay and Freeland. Like, incredible story. Um, I think also more recently, a book called The Remaking of the Mining Industry by David Humphreys, who is the ex-chief um, economist at Rio and also at Norse Nickel, is very good. Oh, I haven't um, heard that one. I haven't heard of that one. It's a really good, interesting um, read about the state of the mining industry today. Um, also, a book called Mining Unearthed by Philip Croson is very good and more of a, it's a bit more of an academic text, but it's very good at looking at some of these economic issues around mining. And from a development point of view, I think Paul Collier's book, The Plundered Planet, is very interesting as well, taking a slightly different angle. Uh, just as a bit of a an interesting read as well. I think the book, the book Fire into Ice about diamonds is very, is very good. Um, yeah. You know, how much of your reading is actually specific to the mining and extractive industries, or is it more around development and economics and these parts of the world in general? So I think, um, I think it's a good, it, it's used, it's split quite uh, evenly between all of them actually. I think the, the ability to read a lot around the natural resources industry is quite limited, especially if you don't, some quite dense text there. So for example, I've just finished reading uh, 21 Lessons for Life by Yobor Harari, who I think is an amazing author, and his book Sapiens and Homo Deus, which I can imagine some others on the podcast have talked about. Fantastic. I think um, the other book that's really impacted me over the last year is Thinking Fast and Slow by uh, Kahneman and Tversky. And I think there's a good combination of these um, of these really thought-provoking books and, and some of some of the other industry-based books that I'm reading. But I know you read a hell of a lot as well. So um. yeah, well, the reason I asked that question is because I actually I tend to find it's the books that I read that have nothing to do with mining, that have nothing to do with uh, extractives, that help me the most, and where I see these these really applicable lessons that have been applied in other industries or in other people's lives. And I, I see them quite clearly how they could fit into this space. And it's really, really shaped my thinking. Uh, you know, I spoke with uh, Nolan Watson quite a bit about this, but the, the number one book I think for me was uh, son of some of two of Nassim Taleb's books, uh, both the black swan and anti-fragile. And it's completely, yeah. completely shaped the way I look at risk. I look at investing. I look at, 
uh, how these companies are approaching the challenges that are faced in the in the industry in an industry that is by its nature very speculative uh, by its nature you're dealing with a lot of unknowable challenges so those are two big things for me but I mean I couldn't agree more I probably spend 30% of my day just reading and trying to trying to broaden that and I think if I can attribute any of my own success to anything, that's been a really, really large part of it. If listeners want to learn more about the work that you're doing, uh, is there a way that they can find out more about Two Oceans or about Tom Mills and, and this, these sort of projects and this sort of, uh, these sort of challenges you're tackling? Yeah, so you know, I think the first point of call is probably our website, www.twooceanstrategy.com. Um, I've also um, got some, and it will list some of the publications that I've got where it looks at some of these topics on the website. And also we're trying to develop a bit of a, uh, a, a knowledge repository for some of the other things we've done. I would also really advise people to have a look at the country comparison section of the Extractives Hub website, www.extractiveshub.org, uh, and have a look at... Um, some of the topic material there, it has a really rich um, level of information. And I think they would be the key uh, key areas to, to start with. Uh, Tom, I know it's a Friday night there. I know you've probably got other things to do. Uh, so I want to be cognizant of your time. But is there, is there any message you'd like to leave our listeners with? Anything you think they should know? Uh, any parting comments? I think you know my my whole career is building up around the real risk of these projects in the extractive industries are typically not below the ground. You know, and we need to start thinking about actually if this if we're going to be able to differentiate ourselves to produce strategic competitive advantage, the skill set is in operating in difficult environments in a responsible and sustainable way. And I think that is incredibly difficult and it's something that we're going to have to invest a lot of time trying to work out uh, and look at how the best way to do that is. Tom, thank you very much for your time today. Hey, Jamie, great to talk as always. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Resource Insider Podcast. If you're interested in getting access to the biggest deals and best opportunities in the mining and metals industry, go to capitalistexploits.at and sign up for Resource Insider now.